1: Monday yep back at it of course uh, driving you know and now everybody's starting to drive back into work so uh, welcome to traffic Uh, so if you're in the car listening to the show no problem uh, we're going to explain everything as much as we can in great detail so you don't miss a lick while you're listening to the radio show today. If you haven't been watching us live on YouTube, of course, you can see all of our visuals, our charts, our presentations. we put it all there for you. So it's a it's a visually interactive show. That's what we try to achieve here. So whether you're on the radio listening to the show in Houston, Austin, we love having you here. Thank you so much this morning. Uh, of course, if you're uh, anywhere else in the country, we have listeners all over the world, right? We have people listening to us in the U.K. and Australia and We appreciate you tuning in through our YouTube channel as well. Of course, you can get all those links on our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And uh, we're about to go through a whole studio renovation here soon. So we got lots of new stuff coming your way. We're going to be producing a lot of new material, new looks, everything else. So very excited about that. Thank you, Natural Disasters, for providing us the opportunity <laughs> to upgrade our studios. I wouldn't call it a natural disaster. <laughs> well, this is true, of course. <laughs> if you don't know the story, I was uh, on vacation. I had gone to uh, take my kids skiing um, in Utah. And, of course, we went through the whole story with you here on the show about how I got delayed in Dallas for you know, almost 24 hours just trying to get home because of high winds in Dallas. Well, we get back home. Uh, nearly 24 hours later from leaving Utah and find out that our entire studio had been flooded by a hot water heater breaking upstairs in our office building. So (laughs) that was our travails, but now we're uh, back in the process. We've been running a temporary studio ever since then. And uh, so hopefully in the next six weeks or so, we'll uh, go through a a renovation here. So um, that's very exciting stuff. We're we're very excited about that. Um, Lots of things uh, to get into today, of course. Uh, I got to talk about the markets first day of May. So not surprisingly, as we end the first day of May, we're going to start to see a little bit of an uptick. Uh, Investors, uh, you know, portfolio managers, they want to make sure they're invested at the beginning of the month. But uh, a couple of things about the month of May also is that, as we've been discussing, um, May starts the seasonally weak period of the year. Now, there's an old adage about selling may go away. And what that suggests is, is that, you know, if you sold everything in May and went to cash and then came back in September, Um, you typically tend to outperform the S&P over a very long period of time. Now, the, the statistics go back, of course, to the 1800s and suggest that basically all your returns are generated between October and May of every year. and in the summers, you don't really make that much money. Now, of course, does that mean every summer is negative? Of course not, right? We've had plenty of positive summers in the past, but on average, they tend to perform more weekly than, the seasonally strong period of the months from October, September, October uh, into April and May. So that's just kind of that statistics out there. We've had a very strong rally in the market since last November, and that also suggests that we may have a little bit of weaker summer, right? Um, also too, we've been talking about a lot of the stimulus money that's been coming in, right? We just had a, 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 tr- a tremendous amount of money hit in March. Uh, that money's getting spent in the system right now. And that also suggests that we may see a peak of economic activity probably somewhere around June, July, as we've been talking about. Probably potentially the biggest risk of a correction in the markets is going to be sometime between June and July. A couple of reasons there. One is stimulus has now run through the system, right? Everybody got their check. They've run out. They spin it. Um, And there's not any more in the pipeline right now. Uh, The bill that's being presented by the Biden administration about more infrastructure, more spending, family leave, health care, all these type of things. That's going to run into some some, you know, some debating issues. In Washington could take a lot longer to get passed than expected and that bill may wind up being smaller so it may be a while before we see more money coming into the system and at the same time we see rising inflationary pressures now you may not be seeing it in higher prices that's one thing but um, you know Procter and Gamble is an example uh, they're issuing out uh, your paper towel rolls right if you go to the store buy your paper towels same price just get 20 fewer sheets. So it's roughly about a 14% increase in the price of paper towels. It's called shrinkflation, right? You get less for more. Open up a bag of potato chips, as an example. Um, You know, there's a lot of air in that bag (laughs) for the amount of potato chips that you actually get. That's shrinkflation. So you're paying more, but getting less. So yeah, you may not be seeing it in higher prices yet, but you're seeing in that form, the other form you are going to see it in is just higher prices, right? Uh, higher cost of deliveries, higher cost of, of actual products that you pay for, though it's all starting to come in the system. So higher prices, of course, eats up that stimulative effect, and that's why you potentially see a peak in economic activity sometime in March. So, again, we'll talk about that. We're also going to talk this morning a bit about... You know, this idea part of of Biden's plan is the fifteen dollar hour minimum wage article out on our website called the adverse consequences of fifteen dollars an hour. We're going to go through that a little bit this morning. One of the one of the comments that always comes back when we talk about this is, well, you got to pay a fair wage. Fair to what? Right. Fair to government stimulus. We got to pay a competitive. We got to pay a competitive wage relative to government stimulus. So because government's providing $400 a week to stay at home, that means we've got to pay everybody for, you know, at least that much money to get them to come to work. Uh, This is where Janet Yellen really misses the mark this morning. She was out talking about that. We need to do all these things right. This is in this is investment in the country. Paid family leave and expanded child care. This is this is investment into the country, and this will create productivity you know it won't and the reason it won't is is that because unless you tie that 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 money which you want to get people paid family leave okay great you want to give them more child care great tie it to work right if you work and you have to pay money out for you know child care etc then you can deduct it off your taxes, right? You get a tax credit for that. That incentivizes people to go to work because they know that they can go to work and they can pay for that childcare and then they can deduct it off their taxes, right? So they pay less in taxes because of doing that. If you just send them the money and say, here's the money with no tie to go to work, it doesn't increase productivity. It says, great, I've got more money to spend. I'll stay at home because now I don't need to be as productive. So stimulus is always anti-productive when you do it. And this is the problem that the low-wage workers in particular, um, and companies that, that require low-wage work, like McDonald's and Sonic and other, are having a hard time finding people to come to work. Even the manufacturers saying, hey, we've got jobs that we're willing to pay $14 an hour for, but people won't come to work because, well, they're staying at home they make more money staying at home than they do actually working so again all these things are problematic and particularly they're problematic when the stimulus creates inflation so we're going to talk about all those factors this morning and what some of the more uh, if don't believe me that's fine because we'll listen to what some of the you know kind of the think tanks around the world say also about this now one of the things always comes up immediately is that people say well you know seattle tried it it worked one thing doing it in a little small sample that'll work across a nation of 330 million people that's another thing real quick here before we get to the markets markets are going to open up this morning but we're still on a sell signal here but we're probably going to trigger that buy signal today suggests that we do need to get a little bit more uh or at least add some money to portfolios you can hold on to your allocations here would not really think about getting exceptionally aggressive here simply because we don't have a strong signal at this point They suggests markets are really set up for a big move higher here. Again, just kind of be cautious here. We're going to talk some more about that in the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Be right back for The Real Investment Show. Don't go away.
0: to The Real Investment Show. Didn't get enough last Lunch & Learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual Lunch & Learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon, we'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our Lunch & Learn on Medicare, Thursday, May 6th. Register now at Real Investment Advice Com. No masks required. The Real Investment Show. This is a public service announcement brought to you by The Real Investment Show in conjunction with Black Rifle Coffee Company. Things you won't hear Texans say. I bet Ted Cruz had a fantastic Cancun vacation. <laughs> I think the oil and gas industry needs some gum woke. I've been meaning to switch to a more vegan whiskey. Things you won't hear Texans say. We now return you to our regular program.
1: And welcome back to the show this morning. It's uh, 618 as we get this uh, show underway. So just to touch on it real quick here, saying you know Janet Yellen out over the weekend, you know, you know throwing her support behind Joe Biden. That's the guy that appointed her Treasury Secretary, so not surprising. But you would think for, you know, economists and these type of things that we might be getting a little bit better advice rather than just going on with along with the political commentary. But Janet Yellen talking about Joe Biden's you know two trillion dollar plus plan, uh, his infrastructure plan, which really is about. 8% infrastructure, the rest of it is a democratic wish list of, you know, kind of more socialistic policies, right? We're going to send more money to uh, to, to individuals. We're going to, to help people, you know, try to improve their life, right, by giving them more money. You know, Ronald Reagan once said that the nine most dangerous words in the, in, in the world are I'm from the government and I'm here to help, <laughs> So, you know. That's and, and that's where we've gotten to, right? Uh, Reagan's fear has now come to fruition with you know Kamala Harris even saying uh, during the inauguration process, help has arrived, right? So the government is here. We're here to help. And this has been really kind of this whole idea is that we can send more money to households, and this is going to somehow fix the economy by giving people more money. And Janet Yellen out over the weekend saying this will this is an investment into productivity. If we if we do this, this will increase the productivity of individuals. And the question is: this, you right, right? There was a in India, they had a cobra problem, and they had cobras running around everywhere. And so the government thought it'd be a great idea. They said, "This is what we'll do: we'll put a bounty on cobras. So if you kill a cobra," You bring it, we'll pay you for it, right? So they actually had a literal bounty, just like people became cobra vigilantes, right? They had a bounty on cobras. You kill the cobra. Um, You know, personally, cobras can live on their own. I'm not going to touch them. But, (laughs) you know, um, if you killed the cobra, brought it in, they would pay you for it. So, you know, India, having some relatively smart individuals, they said, huh, I'll just raise some cobras, Kill them, and then we'll take them in and get paid for it. So all of a sudden, everybody started raising cobras. They would then kill them, take them to the government. They'd get a check for it. It was awesome. Until the government said, hey, wait a second. This this is not what we intended, right? We just intended to get rid of our cobra population, and so we're going to stop doing that. Now there's all these people sitting around with a bunch of Cobras that they've been raising. They said, well, no reason to keep holding on to these Cobras. So they just released them out into the world. And guess what? You had an explosion of the Cobra population, right? It's called the Cobra effect. Well, this is the problem with government stimulus. And is that when you send more money to households without tying it to productivity, and this is the key word, right? If you want money from the government, okay, fine, right? Um, healthcare is expensive. Look, I raised four kids. So, you know, we constantly had to have nannies and preschool and you know everything else when they were little, right? I mean, it's expensive to have kids, especially when both parents work. So, if you want to provide me a tax credit, say, look, you know, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to I'm going to produce and I'm going to create money for the economy. And I've got to pay all this money out to childcare. So if you want to give me some a tax credit, right? So I can use a tax credit to help, you know, lower my my personal income taxes and can offset the the cost of my my childcare. Okay, great. That incents me to go to work. But if you just send me a check and say, "Hey, here's money for childcare." Why work? Right? I'm getting plenty of money, and I'll just stay home and take care of the kids and just keep the money. Right? And so that doesn't actually produce productivity. And that's what we need. If we want to create sustainable, organic economic growth, we've got to have people working. That's what creates growth. Growth doesn't come from consumption. Growth comes from productivity. In other words, I have to produce first and earn a paycheck before I can consume. So if I just try to bypass the productivity part and just send money to consume with, then guess what? Everybody is, you know, people are smart. They figure out ways around everything, right? Want to do PPP programs? People went out and formed businesses and said, whoop, can't stay in business if I don't get PPP. So we send them money, right? They, they didn't even have a business until after we announced the program. But these are the people. The way p- people are smart, right? That's um, you know, so what I always say. If you, there's an old saying that says, if you want to make sure something is foolproof, hire a fool, because somebody will always figure out a way around something. So no matter how well you think it out, somebody will figure out a way to take advantage of it. And the way that we do these programs now is we just shotgun money out to the economy. Of course, everybody takes advantage of it. This is why these things never work out the way we expect. But this is, this is you know part of Janet Yellen's thought process and it just doesn't really work out that way. And this goes hand in glove really with this idea of the $15 hour minimum wage. That has been really kind of a, a centerpiece of really democratic agenda, both during the Obama administration, as well as the Biden administration. And look, does the minimum wage need to, to, to go up? Right. We haven't raised the minimum wage since like the 1990s. Does it need to go up? Yeah. Right. Inflation's gone up. Cost of living's gone up. Minimum wage doesn't need to go up. Probably nine, nine fifteen an hour. But the truth of the matter is there is no minimum wage. Your minimum wage is what you bring to the table. If you show up to work with a skill set and a desire to work and you put in the, 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 the labor, you won't be working for minimum wage very long because you bring a skill that employers want. We've talked about this before. You know, my business, the business that... Me and my partners run right now. We have no minimum wage workers because we we require a very high skill set of individuals to work within our business. (laughs) They don't work for minimum wage. So we have no minimum wage workers anywhere in our business. And this is a vast majority of businesses, by the way. Minimum wage is an entry-level position. It is a starter position. It is a position to where people with no experience can get some experience and build a skill set that employers ultimately want and are willing to pay more for. And you know, I've talked about, you know both my kids um, that are in high school right now. They're required to work. And so they had to go out, they had to get jobs. Uh, They have to pay for their own car. They have to pay for their insurance. They have to pay for their own gas, all their own entertainment stuff. They have to pay for all that, right? Mom and dad don't pay for that. Because the purpose is we want them to learn the experience of working and paying taxes. And they hate it. And it's awesome that they hate it. But they're learning the value of what work is. Neither one of them work for minimum wage. My daughter went to work at the res- at a restaurant. She started out running food out to cars. She's now worked her way up into being a wait a waitress because or, uh, sorry a server. I made that mistake in my house. It is a server. It is not waitress. Okay, boomer. But she's now making more money because she showed up every day she worked hard she was on the job she she did everything she was told to do and they quickly moved her up as soon as she turned 18 to where she could be a server because they have to handle alcohol she was able to move up my son's 17 he's about to turn 18 he's going to move into being a bartender as soon as he turns 18 even he, though, who is still running, running food right now, has worked himself up. He's no longer at minimum wage either. The point is that minimum wage gives an employer an opportunity to evaluate someone with no experience and say, okay, good, I want to keep you. If you're still working at minimum wage, if you've been working at minimum wage for more than a year, You have to really start to consider your personal skill set. And if you want to make more than minimum wage, you have to start taking responsibility to figure out what it takes to make more than minimum wage. Minimum wage was never meant to be a living wage. And this is the big mistake that's put out by the left saying, hey, we should pay a living wage To these people. It was never meant to be a living wage. It's a test wage. It is a wage that says you're going to show up, you're going to have respect for your employers, you're going to have respect for your job, you're going to have respect for yourself. And you're going to learn the ropes and you're going to quickly say, I want more. And you're going to put in the effort and you will be rewarded for doing that. That's the way labor works. But somehow we've gotten off of this idea that we need to have labor and we just need to fairly compensate everybody. But what is fair? Is is fair compensating people at the same level that the government is compensating people? Or is fair what you bring to the table? But when we come back, we'll talk about this, fit, this idea of a $15 hour minimum wage, right? And we're going to, you know, we'll talk about what some of the major think tanks around the country also say what is you know who is it that actually is working for minimum wage and what is the actual impact on the economy and to you be right back after the break more of the real investment show don't go away
0: any place, anytime at realinvestmentadvice.com. Didn't get enough last Lunch and Learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual Lunch and Learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon. We'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our Lunch and Learn on Medicare, Thursday, May 6th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. No masks required. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Carry on my wayward side. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. Yeah!
1: And welcome back to the show. It's the morning. I'm Roseanne Robert. So let's get into this. Uh, fifteen dollar hour minimum wage is is that really is that is that the thing, right? Um, as we were talking about a second ago, you know the, there are issues with minimum wage. And again, one of the the, the arguments that is always comes back when you throw out these ideas about you know fifteen dollar hour minimum wage, and if somebody argues against it, come back and say, well, you know, Seattle tried it or this company tried it, and it all worked out fine. That's one thing, right? The one of the there was a company up in Seattle, and the CEO uh, raised everybody's minimum wage fifteen dollars an hour. He cut his down, uh, his salary down to equal, and the company was still making profits, and it was great. It's one company. It's a much different story when you try to apply it across a country of three hundred million people. This is one of the the kind of the things that you know people that favor more socialistic trends throw out, say, well, Denmark does this, right? They provide, they provide a lot of money to their, their family. It's a country of 6 million people, right? And they've got a huge natural resource base, right? I said Denmark, Norway, sorry. It's, it's, it's a very different environment. You can do things in a very small microcosm and say, oh, that worked, When you try to apply it across an entire country of 330 million people, different story. And so we'll talk about some of these things. Look, here's a good example of what's going on right now. So personal income surged in the month of March. Huge jump in personal income. Personal income's up 21% in March. Where'd it come from? Well, if you squint really hard, (laughs) you can actually see that wages... Rose. They barely show up in the list. The, mass, the, the vast majority of the increase in incomes in March came from government stimulus, unemployment benefits, federal unemployment benefits, government money being sent to households. Wages did go up, though, very slightly. And they did go up and contributed to the rise in personal income. Again, you have to kind of squint at the chart that we're showing right now. If you're in your car, it's no worries, right? Just understand, out of the 21% jump in wages, all but a very small fraction of that was government money. Spending also jumped in March. Not surprising, right? All the stimulus money came in, had a 4.2% surge in personal spending in March. Now what, right? Now that the money's spent... So we sent the household's money. Now the money's spent. Now what are you going to do, right? This is going to be the issue going forward this summer is as unemployment benefits run out in September, as moratoriums run out later this year, all of a sudden people have to start paying rent. They're going to have less stimulus at home and now they're going to have to find work, which means less income unless we pass more stimulus. So the point is, is that when we talk about minimum wages, who is it exactly that makes minimum wage, right? So if we take a look at the demographics of low-wage workers compared to all workers. Now, the latest update I have on this is 2018. This is from the uh, the Kaiser Foundation, Family Foundation. Young adults made up about 35% of low-wage workers of all low-wage workers, right so 35 so if you take a, take the composite of everybody that works for minimum wage 35% of that group was 19 to 25 now doesn't surprise you right i mean 19 to 25 that's my kids right out working getting their first jobs learning the ropes like we were saying earlier a lot of fast food work And that's one of the problems we see going on right now is that we're seeing wages go up for low wage workers and where? Places like McDonald's and Sonic who are having to pay a bonus for get people just to show up to get an interview because they're making more money staying at home than they are actually working. Why am I going to work at McDonald's for nine, ten bucks an hour when I can sit at home and collect four hundred dollars a week? Right. That's the problem. And that's why those wages are rising on the low end, which is fine, great, good that those wages are going up, but those costs are going to get passed through. What are the 10 occupations among low-wage low wage workers? Out of the total number of workers in low-wage, 1.6 million of them are cashiers, 1.1 million are retail salespersons, 1 million are cooks, 1 million are waiters and waitresses, 798,000 customer service reps, 790,000 labor, freight, stock, material movers. You get the idea, 750,000 janitors, building cleaners, stock orders, fillers, teaching assistants, right? Those are your top 10 occupations. What do you note about all those jobs? They're mostly primarily entry-level jobs. It's where you start and then start working your way up. But let's talk about minimum wage. And we're gonna use my son as an example because he's not making minimum wage, but let's just use him as an example as a minimum wage worker, and let's pay him $15, hour, let's pay him $15 an hour a week to work, and let's just assume he's gonna work full time, right? Because we've got to talk about paying a living wage now. So if it's a living wage, they gotta work full time in order to have a living wage. So great, let's pay let's pay my son 16, 17 years old. Sorry, he's 17 now. He he admonished me for saying he was 16. 17 years old. Let's pay him $15 an hour. He works 40 hours a week. That's $600 a week. Can he live on $600 a week? Probably. $600 a week comes 4.3 weeks in a month. $2,580 a month. Multiply that by 12 months. We're going to pay him $30,000 a year. $31,000, actually. Now, let that soak in for a second. We're talking about paying a 17-year-old kid $30,000 a year to run food out to vehicles because of COVID restrictions. Now, let me put that into context for you. $30,000 a year puts you in the top 1% of income earners worldwide. We're talking about putting a 17-year-old kid in the top 1% of income earners worldwide at $15 an hour. Let's expand the math to the current situation. we got 1.9 million workers making minimum wage. Now, this is as of 2020. $30,960 a year, assuming all workers are working full-time, assume everybody worked previously at $750 an hour, wages increased by $29.4 billion a year. Where does that $29.4 billion come from? It comes from two places. It either comes out of the employer's pocket or... It comes out of yours because prices have to go up. And it's not just the low-wage workers. We've got to talk about the trickle-up effect. Okay? Um, If you're watching our live stream right now, I've got a a chart up from PayScale. But I'm going to tell you what it is. So if you're driving your car, don't worry about it. I got you you covered. According to PayScale, the median – now, remember, my son – He's running food out to. He preps the orders. He puts them into the bags. He takes them out to cars for pickup. That's what he does. He has a manager. According to PayScale, the median hourly wage for a restaurant manager is thirteen dollars an hour. So now my son's going to make fifteen dollars an hour, and his manager's making thirteen. That math doesn't work. So now I've get now I'm the restaurant owner, right? So now I've got to I've got to move the salary of my manager, my restaurant manager. I've got to move him up. Right Now I've got to move the salary of the district manager up. And I've got to move the salary of the regional manager up, so forth and so on. Everybody in the company has to get a raise to compensate for the guy running food out to cars at $30,000 a year. No wonder that out of the top three concerns of small businesses, which are taxes, government regulations, poor sales, labor cost is surging through the roof right now. And that's going to be particularly problematic when this becomes more of an issue along the way with lower sales because costs go up. The Congressional Budget Office recently said that, high, this is from, from the CBO, this is a point made explicitly by them. Higher wages would increase the cost to employers of producing goods and services. Employers would pass some of those increased costs onto consumers in the form of higher prices. Those higher prices in turn would lead consumers to purchase fewer goods and services. Shocker. Employers would can employers would consequently produce fewer goods and services as a result they would tend to reduce their employment of workers at all wage levels. When the cost of employing low wage workers goes up, the relative cost of employing higher wage workers or investing in machines, automation and technology The cost of those go down. In other words, what they're saying is that, great, raise the cost on my low-wage workers to where I can no longer afford them, and I will simply just replace them with kiosk, with automation, with higher productivity workers, and I'll pay my higher-wage workers more. Minimum wage increases of $15 an hour hurts the poor more than it actually helps them. That article on our website today on our website, adverse consequences $15 an hour. All the stats are there for you. Realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back.
0: listening to the real investment show didn't get enough last lunch and learn we're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual lunch and learn with medicare on the menu thursday may 6th at noon we'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of medicare parts a b and d understanding sign up periods benefits and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties it's a second helping edition of our lunch and learn on medicare thursday may 6th register now at real investment advice.com no masks required the real investment show
1: and welcome back to this morning i'm your host lance roberts so I have a, I have two neighbors, I have a elderly, not, I shouldn't say, I, I'm old, right? They're older than me. <laughs> so
0: Okay, boomer.
1: I know, right? I, I don't know how to quantify this anymore because I'm of that age like, okay, I'm old. They're just older than me. Um, but they, uh, they're retired, a couple. Um, and they bought a house next door to me and they, uh, they, he used to work for, for Shell, he retired. And he spends half his time—his family lives in California, and all of his friends, because he worked his whole life at Shell here in Houston, um, all of his friends here are in Houston. So they spend about six months of the year in Houston—why? I have no Um, (laughs) idea—go to California uh, and spend their time there. Now, it's interesting because um, they are very much of the kind of that California mindset because that's where they grew up. Great couple, super nice. Um, They drive a Tesla. And they even built a charging station inside their garage to charge their Tesla. And it's interesting because just recently I saw a brand new BMW sitting in their driveway. Paper tags, whole nine yards. And so I said, hey, what happened to your Tesla? He says, we sold it. Because driving to California, we had to stop too often to charge the Tesla because they needed a car in California, right? So they, they would drive to California back. They had to stop, and it would take too long to actually charge the Tesla, right? It, it extended the length of their trip to having to stop to charge their Tesla. I didn't think anything about it. I just thought it was kind of interesting, right? And so they bought a brand-new BMW and drives on gas. Uh, <laughs> But I didn't really think much about it. And then I saw this article. And this is uh, an article out by Dominic Reuter. Roughly 20% of electric vehicle owners in California replaced their cars with gas ones. And this is according to a new study. The main reason the drivers made the switch was the inconvenience of charging, which kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if I if I'm driving somewhere, I can stop and fill up my truck and you know, five minutes, whatever it is, and get back on the road and keep going to where I'm going. You know, I'll have to stop for, you know, half an hour or 45 minutes. Even with a supercharger, I'm still stuck somewhere for 30 to 45 minutes, right? So, and if it's not a supercharger, it could be a couple hours. And this is a finding that suggests new challenges that ultimately we'll face you know, this idea of the electric car market, which is one of the reasons that we've talked about before. You know, there are other alternatives to, if you want to be green, no problem with that. We've got lots of other alternatives that actually provide better efficiency in terms of conversion of fuel into power, like natural gas and others. Um, but this is going to really be a push probably in a future to where we see a move away from electric vehicles into potentially other forms of energy, right? Uh, electric vehicles were kind of the first idea of transitioning from gas gasoline into some other form of power for vehicles, but it's likely not going to be the end stop because again it still requires way more electricity to produce than what the car actually winds up saving. And, and again, where does electricity come from? For instance, you know, the mining of, of, of cobalt requires a tremendous amount of electricity to mine for cobalt, which is generated by coal. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, and this is one of the transitions that we talked about. There was an interesting article uh, talking about this from oilprice.com. And, you know, when we had the freeze here in Texas, it really set up part of the problem behind all of this because, you know, as we talked about, you know, the issue of what happened here in Texas. This isn't really even a, a new thing, so to speak. In in terms of what's happened in California, you know, California has been having power outages for you know brownouts for a long time, and there was an interesting statement of uh, the California Public Utilities Commission. I'm reading this, uh, by the way. The California Public Utilities Commission and the state's grid oper- operator, CAISO, said in a joint letter to government, Governor Newsom, who's being recalled, by the way, uh, following the blackouts, <laughs> on August 15th, Queso experienced similar to August 14th supply conditions as well as significant wind and significant swings in wind resource output when evening demand was increasing. Wind resources quickly increased output at the 4 p.m. hour, approximately 1,000 megawatts then decreased rapidly the next hour. Those factors combined with another unexpected loss of generating resources led to sudden need to shed load to maintain system reliability. Now, this is in California, okay? In Texas, we had the same problem, is that when the windmills and the solar farms all froze and we also lost gas production power because we hadn't winterized properly, huge problem in Texas. We don't normally freeze, right? (laughs) right? So weren't really prepared for having an ice age. In texas but here's the thing this is, is back to uh california caiso said that people wonder how we made it through the heat wave of 2008 now remember back in 2008 there was a big heat wave and california big rolling blackouts and uh and brownouts and people were complaining about the problem but they made through okay The answer is that there was a lot more generating capacity in 2006 than in 2020. There was the nuclear power plant that produced 2,200 megawatts and a number of other plants totaling thousands of megawatts that are simply not there today. So in other words, they made this transition in California more towards wind and solar, got rid of steady, sustainable supplies of electricity... And now they're suffering more and more of these blackouts. And same thing in Texas. And this is why, you know, we've talked about, you know, the idea about renewable power is great, but you've got to focus on renewable power that is both sustainable and efficient. And when we go back to talking about that, now you're talking about natural gas. You're talking about liquefied natural gas, LNG. You're talking about hydroelectric power, nuclear power. These are very sustainable forms and and produce a lot of efficiency and output in terms of powering and producing enough electricity to power cities. Um, There's an interesting uh, story. uh, Tesla's putting in a whole battery farm to help supposedly offset some of the risk of a a power outage, again, like we saw in Texas. So they're establishing this massive battery farm to do this, and it'll power twenty thousand households for about twenty minutes. Doesn't really do a whole lot for the whole state, <laughs> and particularly when you're going to be out for days. And so the question is: is, is really is this, you know, the solution? Is this the answer? Of course, I mean, we haven't talked about you know the the recycling issues and all the other stuff that comes along and the mining issues. Um, you know, lithium mining and cobalt mining is not really very ecologically friendly, and so again, you know, the idea of moving towards a cleaner environment is great idea, but we also have to do it in a way that actually works. And you know, this is one of the issues with this whole infrastructure plan is is that I don't have any problem doing infrastructure, but let's make sure that we're building infrastructure that is both sustainable and efficient longer term. So if we're going to spend a billion dollars or two billion or five billion or 10 billion or a trillion dollars on things like tax credits and other stuff, let's do it in areas. Let's incentivize people to build clean energy that is sustainable, efficient and operable long term. It gets us ultimately to our goals. One of the other kind of interesting headlines out today is is talking about substan you know this idea of inflation. In fact, we talked about this in this weekend's newsletter. We were talking about like minimum wages before uh, earlier in the show, and one of the problems coming up is this impact of inflation that is here. It's not coming; it's here, and you're starting to see it more and more every day, particularly in the things that you buy every day. You know, it's interesting when we take a look at CPI, right? And then we strip out food and energy. And we say, "Well, you know, of course, CPI really hasn't risen that much." Well, it's it's really kind of an asinine measure of inflation because again, housing costs make up about twenty five percent of that number. But that's only based on the changes of people buying a new house today, or, or a house today, or, or signing a mortgage contract today, or, or renting an apartment today. If you live in your house and have a thirty year fixed rate mortgage, your mortgage payment doesn't change. Your rent doesn't change, right from you know, for the year until you re-sign and re-up into your new rental contract, your rent doesn't change. Your rent doesn't fluctuate every month because you're under contract. What does change every day, every week, every month are food costs, energy costs, health care costs. Those are the things that impact you today, immediately, right now. And those things impact the bottom 20% of income earners the most. Because, if you're in the bottom 20 percent of income earners, food costs make up almost 30 to 40 percent of what you spent, because you got to live, right? Got to eat. So while we're running around stripping out food and health care, food and energy costs because, you know, we want to suppress the rate of inflation. The very people that we're trying to help by increasing wages, which leads to higher prices and increased inflation everywhere else in the system, is actually undermining the whole effort to help the poor because it's increasing the cost of what they spend every day. By a dramatic amount, which absorbs any type of financial assistance that you're giving them. Anyway, wraps up the show for today. Lots of stuff to unpack. That whole discussion on inflation is in our newsletter on our website right now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Just click on the newsletter link. Also, all of our latest podcasts and more, along with our videos as well, all on our website under our YouTube channel. Click on that link. You can subscribe there. We'll email you every time we post a new video. Keep you up to date with everything that we're doing. All on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send your questions, comments, emails, whatever we can do to help you. More than happy to do it. realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Monday.
0: Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a